Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can meet me in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 27, is where we will be in God's Word together this morning. Uh, as Daniel said, I'm Evan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and uh, really glad and grateful to be able to worship together um, this morning, uh, we will be starting a new sermon series um, entitled Living the Resurrection Life. And we'll look at a number of passages from the book of Acts uh, between now and the day of Pentecost, which is a church holiday uh, that we'll learn more about in a few weeks. Uh, last week was a momentous occasion. Uh, we celebrated our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. The tomb is empty. Amen. And that changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. The disciples in the first century would have known that. They, they would have felt that. Uh, the, the resurrection caused mayhem. In Jerusalem. If, if you were anyone, you would have been talking about the resurrection in Jerusalem. This is reflected in Luke's gospel, chapter 24, when Jesus is talking to two travelers on the road to Emmaus, and he sheepishly asks them what they're talking about. And one of them says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? In other words, bro, where you been? Uh, uh, how could you not know what's been happening in Jerusalem? And they go on to say, Jesus of Nazareth is gone. He was crucified, died, and he was buried. But the tomb, the tomb is empty. The tomb where they, they buried him, it's, it's empty. He's, he's gone. And it has rattled the city. I thank God the tomb is still empty. Early one Sunday morning, Jesus got up with all power in his hands. Death died that day. Victory over sin was secured that day. Full access to God was made possible because of the finished work of Christ. Amen, somebody. And that's what happened last weekend. Uh, that's what we who named the name of Jesus Christ celebrated last weekend. God so loved the world. And the resurrection is enough. The book of Acts is the immediate aftermath of this world-changing event. The disciples, they began this journey of living their lives in light of the resurrection that happened. And as Acts 17, chapter 17 says, they turned the world upside down. In the book of Acts, we get to see the birth of the greatest movement in history. In the book of Acts, we see God's people learning to live the resurrection life. 
And so for the next several weeks, we will take time in this Easter tide to consider together what the resurrection means for our lives. And we're doing this because the temptation of Easter weekend is that we can kind of treat it like it's merely an event, right? Kind of like Walmart, right? Okay, Easter happened. Now let's put out the Memorial Day stuff and let's turn our attention and move on. But Easter is not merely an event. It has ongoing implications for our lives. It it actually uh, needs to remain central to our lives. So how do we accomplish this? How do we work towards this? Study towards this? Work towards this? Care for people in light of this? That was the challenge for the Christians in Acts. How do we now live in light of the resurrection? And I believe that question is relevant for us. It's relevant as we turn our attention to our passage for this morning. Uh, This passage this morning will provide some insights for this question. In Acts chapter 5, we see the apostles, the original eyewitnesses of Jesus, standing before the court of Jews the Sanhedrin, and they're guilty. They're guilty of living the resurrection life. And so we'll look into this more here. So if you're able, I want to invite you to stand as we read Acts chapter 5, verse 27 through verse 42. Hear now the word of the Lord. Uh, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged. And wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, the Judas rose up. Claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. 
But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Luke just going to say that real flippantly, beat them. <laughs> like, I want to know more what happened there. Then they, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Bread of heaven, you are the living word. Lord, thank you that when we encounter these scriptures, we encounter you. What a great privilege. So, Lord, in light of that, we ask that you would do what only you can do, that as I speak to the ear, you would speak to the heart and transform lives. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I didn't know that art forgery was a lucrative business until I learned about Elmir Dehori. The art trade market is about $200 billion a year industry. Every year, Entities like the FBI, Interpol, and the Scotland Yard expose and confiscate approximately $6 billion of fake and forged art. Elmio Derhori is considered to be one of the most prolific art forgers in history. Born in 1906, he grew up desiring to earn a living as a painter. He moved to the United States in 1947 looking for opportunity. He began submitting his work in exhibits and art galleries in New York, but he could not ever seem to earn enough for a living. He fell on hard times, unsure of how he was going to live. And he remembered that he had sold a handful of forgeries back in Europe. So he figured he would try his luck in the States. He began traveling the country, impersonating an aristocrat that's fallen on hard times after the World War. And he found that he had a real knack for it. He sold forgeries of Picasso, Matisse, Modigliani, and the list goes on. Most forgers make upwards of a hundred forgeries in their lifetime, but it is believed that Dehori sold over a thousand, many of which still to this day are in art museums across the country. By the end of his life, Dehori made about $50 million off his forgeries. An extraordinarily talented painter, and I'd even say an exceptional businessman. <laughs> but none of that made a difference because he didn't have a name that had value. When the paintings were in his name, he made nothing. When the paintings were believed to be in the names of Monet or Renoir, he made millions. 
The authenticity, the, the value, the power was found in the name. And when Elmir de Hori was exposed and the names of these masterpieces proved false, he lost everything. Because ultimately, no matter how talented you are, people want to invest in something that is real. Something that's authentic. People want real. The most critical question of our faith is this. Is the resurrection real? Last week, Pastor Daniel pointed us to the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. When he said, if Jesus hasn't been raised, we should be pitied. If Christ hasn't been raised, we are still in our sins. If Christ isn't raised, our faith is useless. The resurrection is critical. And he writes says this, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project. Not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to inhabit earth with the life of heaven. The realness of the resurrection means that the glory of God has been revealed in a radically expansive way on earth. And God has chosen his people, as he always has, to be his ambassadors of this new reality. In the book of Acts, we see the outworking of this through the apostles and the church in Jerusalem. These apostles have become troublemakers. Acts 2.47 says that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Thousands of people were becoming followers of Jesus. And this has caught the attention of the Jewish leaders. They don't like it. It felt like an uprising. It felt like a revolt. They wanted to stop them, but they couldn't. Lives were being changed. People were worshiping God. And they were proclaiming this name, this Jesus. In chapter 4, the apostles were captured, but then released. Then in chapter 5, they're captured again, imprisoned, because they continue to disobey the direct orders of the Sanhedrin. Stop proclaiming the name of Jesus. Up to this point, the apostles actually never addressed the Jewish leaders, the chief priests. They hadn't actually addressed what they did to Jesus. They didn't address how they lied on him. They didn't address how they cried out, crucify him. They didn't address how they mocked and ridiculed Jesus. The chief priests thought that they had won when they saw Jesus on that cross. They didn't know that they ended up being a catalyst for this move of God. And now there's this moment. This moment for uh, the proverbial elephant in the room to be addressed. They're about to talk about it. Verse 28 and 29, the high priest of the council charges them with two things. One, you keep talking about the name after we told you not to. Don't respect him enough to call him Jesus. And you intend to bring this man, Jesus' blood, on us. 
Now, Matthew 27, 25, they wanted Jesus' blood on them. They were very vocal about that because they wanted so badly to get rid of him. But what this high priest is referring to is a Jewish law that says that if you murder someone wrongly, it is lawful to take the guilty person's life. They're being indicted. Peter confronts, he charges them. He charges them with the gospel. He basically says, yes, you are guilty. The blood is on your hands. Yet that doesn't have to be the final say. And Peter lays out for them in an incredibly succinct way the realness of the resurrection. Which parenthetically, I love that it's Peter boldly proclaiming Jesus in this moment. Because he's guilty too. Denied Jesus multiple times. These apostles, these disciples, they abandoned Jesus. The gospel is for guilty people. From Peter's testimony to the Sanhedrin, there are three things that are critical to living the resurrection life. One is obedience. Second is repentance. And third is witness. Obedience, repentance, and witness. Obedience. Verse 29, Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. You cannot be a Christian if you are unwilling to obey God. But the word for obey here in the original language conveys a sense of submission to authority. Peter is saying Jesus must be our authority in how we live over anyone or anything else. This is easy to say. Not so easy to do. Because the reality is we are being shaped by so much in our lives. That that we struggle to actually submit to Christ as our authority. There's a discipleship gap. If you don't believe me, just just check the screen time on your iPhone. Don't you hate it when that report comes in? I mean, right on Sunday morning, too. I mean, giving you just this little dose of shame right as you're on your way to church. Your phone use has gone up 426%. Like, oh, my Lord. You've been on your phone 23.5 hours a day. Like, what? The The shame is real. And the report is really saying, you have been shaped this week. You have been formed this week. Whether you know it or not. Rich Velotis, the author of A Deeply Formed Life, says this, The troubling reality is that believers can be deeply committed to being Christian without ever being deeply formed by Christ. The deeply formed life is first about who we are becoming before what we are doing. Our most effective strategy in reaching a world for Christ is grounded in the kind of people we are being formed into. The quality of our presence is our mission. The quality of our presence is our mission. Obedience is about who are we becoming. Peter says we must obey God rather than man. 
And what he's saying here is, I want the quality of my life to reflect the kingdom of Christ more than anything else. And that's the challenge. That our lives don't always reflect the kingdom of Christ. Our lives often reflect our political affiliation. Our lives often reflect our news media outlet. Our lives often reflect our influencer that we're following. Our lives often reflect our affiliations with job or school or family. And we struggle to actually submit to the authority of Christ. We need to grow in our obedience. Which leads me to my second point. Repentance. Repentance. Verse 31, Peter says, God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. They go together. I I love it. After Peter blasts them in verse 30 by letting them know, you killed Jesus, the one whom the God our father raised, God of our fathers raised. So much to unpack in that statement, but it sets up verse 31, where Peter says, Jesus is exalted to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. Repentance is a gift from God to his people. I wish I could camp out there for a while. One of my biggest prayers for Christ Central Church and really for all believers, is that we would be people who are known for our repentance. Among all the other things we could be known for, repentance is actually the key because it is the believer's unique contribution to the world. Everybody's talking about it. We got to get, get on this cause, do truth telling this, that, keep it 100, no cap, all this and that. Yes, we want to pursue truth. Yes, we want to pursue all these things. Get on a cause. But what we have that's unique in our contribution is repentance. No other worldview, no other religion has repentance as a core ethical framework. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, repentance is a turning toward God as a result of our awareness and hatred of sin and the apprehension of God's mercy. The gospel message is you are absolutely, condemnably guilty. And yet it's not the last word about you. Morning by morning, new mercies we see. Does anybody know something about this mercy? I said, does anybody know something about these mercies that are new every morning? They never come to an end. And God forbid that Christ Central would ever be a place when someone would think they are beyond God's mercy. If you are here, You are here to receive God's mercy. No matter what your mess is, I got some too. And God's mercy spans the scope of it. Oh, that we will be a place that that will be felt more and more. God, thank you for the gift of your repentance. 
Therefore, as Hebrews 4 says, we can approach his throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy. That's the core. I pray that that permeates the life of our church. Because repentance isn't merely an act. It's actually a heart posture. It's a lifestyle. Point three. Lastly, witness. Living the resurrection life, it's about obedience, it's about repentance, and it's about witness. The resurrection means that we witness. Verse 32. Peter says, we are witnesses to these things. And the Holy Spirit, who is given to those who obey. Witness here is referring to the reality that the apostles actually, they saw Jesus. They're actual eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And they are also witnessing. They're on trial, after all. They're they're giving their, their testimony. Peter is saying, I'm not telling you about something I heard. I'll tell you about something I've seen for myself. Something that I, that I know for myself. And we're going to tell everyone we know about it. This is the outworking of what many call the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Jesus tells the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and following the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And Acts chapter 1 verse 8, I feel like it's also part of the Great Commission. When Jesus says, you will be my witness. And the Holy Spirit comes on you to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And we see that unfolding in the book of Acts. Right now, they're in Jerusalem. And they won't stop. They're captivated by the resurrection. And it was not simply uh, preaching good messages, though that was incredible. I mean, Peter preached a message and 3,000 folks got saved. I want that testimony about my preaching. Now I preach one sermon and 3,000 folks come to know the Lord. Help me, Holy Ghost. Um, uh, This is gospel proclamation, absolutely. But it's also living faithfully. That was a primary way that people came to know the Lord. That God's people lived faithfully for him. That they didn't live... And people notice and you respond by saying, oh, I'm just a nice guy. I'm just an awesome sister. No, I live this way because of what the resurrection means to me. It changes the why for living. Titus 2.14 says it this way. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, but also who are zealous for good works. The gospel addresses our worship and our work. The, the way we live, the way we love. And what was particular about this movement is that they were intentional about looking for those on the margins and, 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 and treating them with intrinsic dignity because they, they knew the story. They, they knew the message. So that person, regardless of their background, regardless of their experience, had worth, had value. That was the unique contribution of these people and it was enrapturing. Obedience, repentance, witness. These are critical to living the resurrection life. I thought about here if I was going to take this illustration out, but I'm going to take it. I remember the day I learned about Chipotle. 
Chipotle changed my life. I remember I was in college. I was riding in the car with my friend. And we were talking about what we were going to eat for lunch. They said, we were listing off things, you know, Popeye's, Panda Express, so on and so forth. You know, that college diet. And he said, well, maybe we could try Chipotle. I said, what is Chipotle? And he, he was driving and looked me dead in my eye. You don't know about Chipotle? <laughs> and he took this, we had just passed the Chipotle. He took this, I thought it was somebody of the Fast and the Furious. He was so serious about getting us to Chipotle because he wanted to make sure that I would taste and see that Chipotle was good. <laughs> he was convinced that I needed to experience it. I've never been the same since. <laughs> I love it. Because when, when, when you've experienced something and you know it to be good, you just naturally want to share it. It's good. This resurrection life is good. And we should want to share it. But the tension of that makes its way out in verse 33 through verse 42. These verses are are interesting to me. In verse 33, we see that the Sanhedrin are enraged by Peter's testimony. And they're ready to kill them all. And and one of the more respected Pharisees, Gamaliel, he he steps in and he kind of, sort of advocates for the apostles. Um, Because the Sanhedrin are ready. I'm sure they're reaching for stones. But the the Sanhedrin, they're about to kill them. And Gamaliel tells them, uh, this isn't the first uprising. Trying to... Bring the temperature down a bit. This isn't the first uprising, guys. We've seen them before, okay? We saw the Judas. We saw Judas the Galilean. They amassed some folks, but they all petered out eventually. All right? And then he says uh, something that is partially true, but is also partially not true. Um, What does he say in verse 38 and verse 39? If this Jesus movement is of man, it will fail. If it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And you you might be going against God himself. It's a very sober advice and recommendation. And it's it's partially true. Uh, You you cannot overthrow God. That's shown enough truth. And the kingdom of Jesus Christ continues to this day. Hallelujah. But Gamaliel is also partially wrong. Because there's countless movements that are ongoing and expanding, and they are of human origin. Yes, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Yet in the meantime, this Jesus movement is ongoing along with other movements and ideologies. So then, we come back to the critical question. Is the resurrection real? The question is not, is Christianity working? Or is Christianity moving? You you shouldn't become a Christian merely because it works for you. And I know that's a prevailing mindset in our culture. If it's true for you, go for it. It works for you, go for it. But that mindset doesn't work ultimately. Because what happens when my truth and what works for me conflicts with your truth and what works for you? What do we do then? You should follow Jesus because the resurrection is real. 
not simply because it works. That's why Gamaliel's advice inevitably breaks down. He says, leave them alone because they are nuisances and we can outlast them. That's basically what he's saying. But in the next chapter, they seize Stephen. And the chapter after that, they stone him. And ultimately, it's why the original apostles were eventually murdered. Crucified upside down, saw in half, dipped in boiling oil. Because the message of the resurrection, it actually confronts us. It's actually after us. It's not just trying to occupy similar space. It demands a response, a surrender. And whether that is now or in eternity, we will respond. Either in worship or rejection, but we will respond. And it won't just be coexistence. So is the resurrection real? Because if it's real, it changes everything. Tim Keller says this, a real Jesus, a Jesus who's there because he was raised from the dead, who you don't want to believe in because it means losing control, but you have to because it must be true. That's the kind of Jesus that can change you, can lift you up when you hate yourself or or pick your bubble when you're getting too big for your britches. That's the only kind of Jesus that can really change you. And that's ironic that that's the Jesus you need. It's ironic because you don't need a Jesus that meets your need needs you need a jesus that is true you need a jesus that is true is the resurrection real because if it's real it changes everything may we who believe respond like these disciples and proclaim the name that is real regardless of the results And trust that he will bring his glory to bear upon this earth as he sees fit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, we confess that we are not witnesses for your kingdom as we should be. We do not proclaim as we should. We do not live as we should. Lord, we are sinful. Our hearts are mingled up with distraction and doubt and fear and self-indulgence. And we are not captivated by your glory as we should be. And yet, you still offer to us your mercy. You still draw us in to your presence. The resurrection is still real, even in the moments when we don't feel it. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we can come back to this reality over and over again and be renewed. Transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.